This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Like all important decision-making processes, the final meeting on Pokhran, that is in early 1974, was one which involved heated discussions. P. N. Dhar was vehemently opposed to the explosion. He felt it would damage our economy. P. N. Huxer took the view that the time was not ripe and gave his reasons. My own view was that it was now impossible to postpone the date, given the expense, time and the critical stage the experiment had reached. Fortunately for my team, Mrs. Gandhi decreed that the experiment should be carried out on schedule for the simple reason that India required such a demonstration. That was Dr. Raja Ramanna, at the time the chairman of the Bhaba Atomic Research Center, and later he would go on to head the Atomic Energy Commission and even become a minister some years later. At the time, however, he was the leader of the team of scientists and technologists which had made the first Indian atom bomb explosion. Bomb is perhaps not the right word. Let us call it the first peaceful nuclear device explosion. He was speaking about the test on 18th of May 1974 at Pokhran. This is History Chatter and we return to episode 4 of the special series on India's atomic energy research. We call it Atomic India. In the last episode, we heard about India coming upon nuclear reactors, but the extent to which it was hoped that India had indigenized the technology to produce nuclear power was certainly not accurate. There was a great and long road ahead. So, Atomic Energy Commission now turned to the task of obtaining a nuclear power reactor. That was the next frontier. In that direction, there had to be some critical choices. Decisions had to be made, for instance, about the choice of the fuel. Was it to be natural or enriched? The technology to produce enriched uranium was too expensive. Similar decisions had to be made about moderator and coolants. But India had by the late 1950s discovered enough uranium reserves to power several natural uranium-based reactors. Nonetheless, since India appeared to have larger reserves of thorium, the Indian experts had been banking on thorium as the main fuel for power reactors. Now, a thorium-based sustainable long-term fuel strategy required regular access to plutonium. Since thorium could be used as a fuel only in combination with plutonium, this and several other factors eventually led to the Indian experts zeroing on a family of breeder reactors fueled by uranium-233. The trouble was that plutonium was not known in the market as a potential partner of thorium to produce uranium-233. Its claim to fame or notoriety 
was that it was the primary fissile material. I'm talking about plutonium. So plutonium was the primary fissile material used in the first generation of nuclear weapons, such as the bomb dropped in Nagasaki. As a result, trade of plutonium or trade in plutonium became suspect. And control of plutonium circulation was one of the common strategies to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Monitoring the production of plutonium in course of normal reactor functioning soon became part of what is called safeguarding a nuclear reactor. It meant that a country producing or dealing with plutonium had to necessarily allow its reactors to be examined by non-proliferation agencies at any point of time. For the Indian strategy to work, however, they required unrestricted access to plutonium. That is, they needed an unsafeguarded reactor, but not for the usual reasons. They needed this plutonium to make their breeder strategy to work. However, there was no breeder technology of the kind India needed or wanted available at the market at that point of time. Curiously enough, India's strategy was based not on um, existing technology, but on the value of basic scientific principles and its own resource base. Well, people knew how to make uh, enriched uranium and nuclear power, but that kind of technology or equipment did not yet exist. Meanwhile, the Americans had considerably softened their approach to policing the trade in nuclear fuels and other related components. So when Baba approached them in 1959, with a proposal for a 250 megawatt nuclear energy reactor, they displayed a cautious enthusiasm. There were several concerns, however, such as the cost factor, foreign exchange, heavy reliance on imports, lack of middle-level managers, and so on and so forth. Yet, America was suddenly ready to do business with India, probably on account of political calculations. They believed India would be going ahead with nuclear power plants anyway, and it made sense to be part of that process rather than see it take shape from a distance. India did indeed launch a global tender in 1960 for applications to build India's first nuclear energy reactor. Canada, Britain and France were already in the race, and now the Americans too threw in the gauntlet. Finally. The Atomic Energy Commission signed contracts with both Canadians and the US companies to build two 200 megawatt reactors in Tarapur near Bombay and at Pratapgarh near Kota in Rajasthan. The USA soon offered India an $80 million loan for the reactor at Tarapur to be built. Now, Bhabha's decision to approach the US was puzzling for several reasons, such as their usual reluctance to share technology and the use of enriched uranium for fuel, which was against India's stated policies. 
Contracting for a US reactor would create a situation of temporary dependence and would increase foreign exchange outlets for fuel especially. Moreover, there was no guarantee that plutonium that India needed for its long-term self-reliance strategy would be made available. In short, a deal with the US was going to make India rely wholly on the US, particularly for fuel supply. It probably means that even though the rhetoric of India's nuclear policy was heavily loaded in favor of self-reliance, in practice, that principle had been increasingly diluted over the years. The only explanation was that the commission had to quickly demonstrate that the nuclear energy program had reached a stage where it was ready to contribute to the ambitious objective of national development. Now, Atomic Energy Commission would now begin to seek funds, not so much from the science and technology budgets, but from development budgets. In the late 50s, the commission had requested funds from the planning commission for a thousand megawatt capacity nuclear power reactors to be built. The planning commission did not yet envisage nuclear power as a major contributor to the resolution of the power problem in India. Nonetheless, it did make allocations for 670 megawatts of nuclear power capacity to be built. It meant that there had to be four reactors in five years in place. The Atomic Energy Commission had no prior experience of building a nuclear power reactor. The only way this ambitious target could be reached was through a massive infusion of foreign expertise. This background partly explains Baba's proactive approach to the Americans. However, Baba had to ensure that the aid for the nuclear reactors did not cut into any other promised international funds, development funds for India's uh, prospects. Meanwhile, the government modified the institutional form of Atomic Energy Commission in 1958 and again in 1962. Now, these new changes basically strengthened the direct connection of the PMO with the Atomic Energy Commission. The power of the state over atomic matters was extended to an unprecedented degree, especially in the 1962 Act in particular. Now, these new laws, the Atomic Energy Bill of 1962, imposed further secrecy and immunity. It seemed a bit of an anomaly for an organization which was entrusted with the task to produce electricity for development. Why did the commission need so much secrecy and so much immunity from public criticism if all it was doing was produce electricity? Now, obviously, there was something brewing. Meanwhile, an enormous change had been sweeping the world of Indian atomic scientists. 
They were no longer to carry out technical research and publish its results in various journals. The work was now to be evaluated in wholly different terms. They were now to produce electricity and that electricity was to be connected with hundreds of thousands of households. The efficiency or worth of these scientists was now to be measured by how much electricity for development they could produce and how soon. The scientists were gradually turning into technologists and engineers. In fact, what was happening was a reduction of the profile of the atomic energy project in India. Earlier, it stood for a sign of modernity, India's sovereignty and of endless possibilities. Now, if its sole purpose was to produce electricity for millions, its promise for future stood to be rather limited. If all atomic research would do was to make electricity for millions, its claim to exclusivity and secrecy was effectively diluted, even if it was deemed to have the potential to replace all existing sources of energy in future. The new veils of secrecy and insulation for public criticism designed by the laws uh, which came in force in 1958 and again in 1962 um, were probably a counter uh, a counter to the imminent threat of, of a reduction in the profile of atomic energy research. It was time now to reinvent the profile of atomic energy research in India, to somehow hitch its prospects with one more grand and majestic objective. If it had to maintain its former prestige and secrecy and immunity from public exposure, or scrutiny. So the scientists now had to fend against the risk of turning into technologists or engineers. They had to remain scientists and chase a big dream once again and redefine their project real soon. Now their response was to situate the atomic energy research within another realm of state activity which would be equally central to the state's ideological mission and equally justified in terms of its raison d'etat. They decided now to build bombs. The crisis cannot be stated more clearly. The moment nuclear reactors began to go critical, they were publicized as though Indian atomic scientists had made a great breakthrough. It was only a matter of time before here they would start producing electricity. However, the reality was that Indian scientists had not yet developed and were nowhere near developing the capacity to build indigenous reactors and electricity. They chose to be pragmatic and they began to import technologies. And these imports were marketed as progressive leaps towards indigenization. Now, that, of course, was ironical, but there are so many ironies like that in life and in the world. What happens then? The next decade, the decade of the late 60s and early 70s, 
So a crucial shift in the relations between atomic energy as institution and an object and the Indian state. Large sums of money were spent, but atomic reactors were not yet generating electric power. Given the origin of the reactors and the sense of indigenous accomplishment was really weak. Yet, the successful creation of an Indian atomic reactor had already raised public expectations. There was no legally binding statement in the 1962 bill about peaceful uses. In retrospect, the rush and the lack of debate on this bill and its provisions would seem to be some sort of a preparation for atomic energy being drawn into a greater and more intimate equation with the state and the interests of national security. Earlier, when India had been uh, negotiating for reactors with Canada, uh, I'm talking about the 40 megawatt Cyrus reactor, Indian negotiators managed to ensure that safeguards to monitor fuel records or stockpiles were never written into the formal contract. That was a great victory, as a matter of fact, and at some point we'll find out the details. It seems quite clear that from the very beginning, Indian negotiators for the Cyrus reactor had been conducted with, uh, had been uh, conducting themselves with an explicit awareness that this reactor could produce the materials necessary for a weapons option. As the Cyrus reactor was being set up, Bhabha announced the building of a plutonium reprocessing plant at Trombe. The objective was to have it ready in time to absorb the fuel elements from the Cyrus reactor. Now that plant was ready in June 1964. So by the middle of 1964, Atomic Energy Commission had a reactor which produced plutonium. It also had a reprocessing plant to convert that plutonium to weapons-grade bomb material. Now, the significance of this development cannot be underestimated. According to Itty Abraham, who wrote um, the book Making of the Indian Atomic Bomb, The U.S. Office of the Technology Assessment estimated that about 5 to 10 kilogram of plutonium is required to build an explosive device. Even if the Atomic Energy Commission had not produced any weapons-grade plutonium earlier, it was clear that the plant now had the capacity to produce about 8 kilograms of plutonium every year. It was enough to make at least one bomb. In other words, Atomic Energy Commission would now have sufficient material to produce a bomb by the middle of 1965. 
And that was only eight months after the Chinese had tested their atom bomb. Even if Atomic Energy Commission wanted to build a reserve of such material before going ahead with the explosion, that too would have been ready by the middle of 1967 or so. It's possible to assume then that by the time uh, the 1962 nuclear bill was being tabled in the parliament, the Indian atomic energy scientists probably knew that they were only a few years away from producing weapons-grade fissile material. The rush to push through that bill probably came out of a concern to have all the legal safeguards in place, including restrictions on information about the progress of the development of the atomic energy program in India. It was necessary before beginning a weapon-centric energy program to have in place those safeguards. Now, these developments had very little to do with escalation of hostilities with China in 1962. These plans had been on the table well before that crisis came about. Meanwhile, the decade of the 1960s um, saw a series of events which quickened the clamor for an Indian bomb. The Cold War atmosphere had been heating up. The Berlin Wall had been built and fenced. India lost a war with China. The hollowness of the idealist non-alignment policy had been exposed. Nehru found it hard to cope with criticism that China had betrayed India's trust. There was no immediate call, however, to make a bomb soon after the Chinese defeat. But when China tasted its nuclear bomb in October 1964 at a marshy site called Lop Noor in the Xinjiang province, the reaction in India was fast and furious. There were calls from all ideological positions for a befitting response to this belligerent act. There were three options available. One, India could sit still and do nothing, which would have been a political and diplomatic suicide. Two, India could approach the US or the USSR for a guarantee of aid and security in case of a possible nuclear confrontation with China. Three, India could build its own bomb. Meanwhile, Nehru passed away in May 1964 and Prime Minister Lal Bahadur Shastri chose the second option and initiated a secret discussion with the US. There were negotiations um, and Indian atomic scientists were not completely happy. But they were pragmatic. Bhabha pitched his propositions to his US interlocutors in starkly Cold War terms. There were two models of government before the newly independent third world countries. Democratic India or dictatorial China. India needed to make some major peacetime gains to recover the prestige that China had already gained 
by virtue of its nuclear bomb. If India were to retain its prestige relative to China in the field of science and technology, Baba said, two things must be done at once. Ways must be found to demonstrate India's scientific achievement to the newly independent Asian and African countries. At the same time, more publicity had to be given to the fact that the Chinese nuclear program was largely a result of extensive Russian aid. The pressure became unbearable following the Pakistan War of 1965. USSR and the US stopped shipping weapons to South Asia altogether. It immediately removed hopes for a fresh supply of aid or in case of a nuclear defense of help and protection from the superpowers. In September 1965, nearly one-fifth of the members of the Indian parliament urged Prime Minister Shastri to start an open nuclear weapons program. Shastri nonetheless only made a careful statement. India could become a nuclear power if it so wished, but the country's current policy did not choose to follow that path yet. Things did not improve. There were economic crises and bad harvests successively in 1965 and 66. The five-year plans had to be suspended in favor of annual plans. The ruling Congress party fared its worst in the 1967 elections. It is puzzling why and how the political leadership did not push for the nuclear bomb. The technology was available, the material was available. It seemed the leadership had chosen the option of doing nothing. So what really explained India's um, reticence? The explanation has to be sought in the rapidly changing political landscape in India. Nehru's death was a body blow. With him went away what may be called a powerful and imaginative political leadership. In any case, he had lost his prestige and undisputed authority since the loss to China in 1962. Some observers argue that Shastri was at best a stopgap leader, that the real political battles were being fought off stage. Even though Shastri proved to be far more tenacious than many give him credit for, he was far less enthusiastic about the atomic energy program than Nehru. Indira Gandhi, the next prime minister, was certainly more keen than Shastri on the nuclear energy program. And her personal equation with Bhabha was excellent. But Bhabha too passed away only a few days after Shastri. The Atomic Energy Commission was to suffer just as well. Bhabha's death came as a catastrophe to the Indian atomic energy community. Vikram Sarabhai, a decade younger than Bhabha, was chosen by Mrs. Gandhi to be the chair of Atomic Energy Commission. While Sarabhai agreed with Bhabha on many counts, 
On the questions of atomic weapons, he had made two moves, which clearly differed from the general drift of Baba's approach. He sought to demystify the opacity of India's nuclear policy. He preferred more transparency. And he actively sought to reduce the use of nuclear weapons as an instrument of foreign policy. In a press conference soon after his appointment, he categorically observed that he did not see the atom bomb as a solution to India's problems. Now, um, there's no need really to feel that he would overturn the Bhaba approach. He did not seek any modification in the 1962 legislation, which gave uh, the Atomic Energy Commission so much power and secrecy. But Saravai did offer a new vision for the atomic energy research in India. He wanted to connect it with solutions of real-life problems. It was no longer merely about producing energy. He gave a concrete shape to the idea of how to consume this power. He envisaged, uh, for example, a vast agro-industry complex which would be fueled by nuclear energy. He also explicitly connected it with space research. At the same time, he expanded the scope and shape of nuclear power research to an unprecedented degree. For example, he projected that by 2000, India would build capacity for as much as 43,000 megawatt nuclear reactors which was 10 times of what it had in 1970. Unfortunately, he too passed away at the relatively young age of 53 in December 1971. This time, the Atomic Energy Commission leadership was chosen from among the community of nuclear scientists. Homi Setna was appointed the chairman and Raja Ramanna was the director of the Trombe facility, that is Bhaba Atomic Research Center. The Trombe scientists were unhappy with Sarabhai's vision. Now, they believed that Sarabhai's vision um, created a greater risk of foreign dependence. The likes of Setna and Raja Ramanna were keen for their institutions to grow, of course, but they were not ready to take as much risk as uh, a Bhaba or a Sarabhai would have taken given their eminent international standing. While the Trombe scientists were not keen to take great risks, they proved more lucky. By 1972, the economic condition of the country had improved and Indira Gandhi was firmly in the saddle. India had handsomely defeated Pakistan in the Bangladesh Liberation War and acquired a new honourable standing in the international community. But in the international front, a new challenge appeared in the horizon in the form of non-proliferation discussions. 
India's general position was that while nuclear weapons are a concern, the real threat to world peace came from the vast nuclear arsenals controlled by the USA and the USSR. Any regime seeking nuclear control had to be applied equally to all nuclear powers. It made no sense for the nuclear states to apply brakes only on non-nuclear states. India advocated two clear positions. First, nuclear non-proliferation must include reduction of the arsenal of the two biggest nuclear powers. And no restriction would be tolerated on India's right to peaceful use of atomic technology. But this position soon led to a strange irony. India's moral high ground lay in claiming that it knew how to make bombs, but did not do so out of a moral position. Now, if India went ahead and developed weapons, it ran the risk of being mocked by the international community as a hypocrite. Therefore, India went about carving a space as a country which was capable of developing nuclear weapons but did not do it. At the same time, by insisting on its right to develop peaceful uses of nuclear power, it had left open some space to develop weapons if it had been pushed to a corner. It kept insisting on its sovereign right to the atomic technology and was clear that the technology per se was not the problem, but the intent with which it is used. India began to consider the possibility of conducting a peaceful nuclear explosion since the death of Sarabhai. In November 1972, Prime Minister Mrs. Gandhi observed in the parliament that India had been considering the possibility of peaceful underground nuclear explosions. It seems India had begun to informally talk to America and Canada about prospects of a peaceful nuclear explosion at the time. Canada, for example, had warned of economic and political repercussions. Uh, the atomic scientists, meanwhile, had started manufacturing the explosive device. According to Raja Ramanna, all the technical problems had been solved by 1973. A site had already been found in the Indian Army's taste range in the deserts of Rajasthan. The bomb had already been moved to the test site. Even though there were some reservations, Mrs. Gandhi's determination that the test should be carried out simply because India required such a demonstration pushed aside all disputes, reservations and questions. The explosion finally did happen, as we all know, on 18th of May, 1974. Perhaps now we can go back and understand why the government was in such a hurry to push through the 1962 bill. The atomic energy establishment had begun the process of making the bomb 
as early as 1955. But the public opinion shifted in favor of the bomb only by the end of 1964, once China carried out its own explosion. India's international negotiators had always made sure that India retained the right to carry out peaceful nuclear explosions for the simple reason that there was little difference between peaceful explosions and weapon-centric explosions in terms of technology. The puzzle is now solved. India was ready, practically, for an explosion as early hypothetically speaking, as 1965, and certainly by 1967. If there was a delay in carrying out the tests yet, it was not because of technology, but on account of political and institutional limitations which took place between uh, 65 and 71, 72, the death of Bhaba, the death of Nehru, the death of Vikram Sarabhai, the question of the change in the equation between the Prime Minister's office and the atomic energy establishment was a delicate issue. So many of these intangibles uh, would not fall in place before 1975 when India would be a strong uh, position once again and feel much more confident to carry out and defend the explosion which eventually took place in 1974. I'll have plenty more to talk about the explosion per se how it was received in the world and the ways in which it changed the perception of the world and the people in India about India's power, authority, standing and capacity in the international community and in the world. But that's coming in the next episode. That's the final episode of Atomic India which is to be aired next week. I'll see you next week with the final episode of Atomic India. Thank you very much.